Now, in my opinion, the scariest stories are the ones that don't have any room for jokes or laughter. Live from Liverpool, The Dark Paranormal with Kevin Eustace. Hello and welcome to the season one finale of The Dark Paranormal. I hope over these ten episodes you've enjoyed listeners' submissions of their real paranormal experiences. The Dark Paranormal was a little bit of a passion project for me, for want of a better phrase. As you will know, I also host the light-hearted ghost podcast we need to talk about ghosts and i love doing it it's more me on a day-to-day the dark paranormal on the other hand i decided to do because as jovial and light-hearted as i like to be and who doesn't i do believe there are certain stories certain elements of the paranormal which deserve decorum and which deserve a serious retelling. I hope that that's what I've delivered in season one of The Dark Paranormal. And thank you to everyone who submitted a story for me to read out. As I've alluded to before, season two of The Dark Paranormal will take a slightly different tack Namely, we will look at some of the more famous paranormal cases which have made history around the world and deliver them in the style of the dark paranormal. And that's the template that the dark paranormal will run off going forward. We will alternate seasons between listeners' true paranormal experiences and taking a deep look at some of the more famous and well-known cases. I'm reticent to really put a tag on the dark paranormal, so that may well change in terms of format moving forward. But how it's working, in my head at least for now, is each alternate season will be true listener experiences. With that said, if you have a story which you think is suitable for the dark paranormal then please send it in via email to contact at talkaboutghosts.com that's contact at talkaboutghosts.com it was always my intention with the dark paranormal to scare you I'm not going to pretend it wasn't Yes, my other podcast, We Need to Talk About Ghosts, has some absolutely terrifying true ghost stories. But sometimes, I personally listen to paranormal podcasts to get scared. And, as it says in the intro of this podcast, sometimes delivering those stories in a light-hearted way does not give that scare factor enough. 
And although it's a strange thing to say, I genuinely hope over the last nine episodes and today on this episode, there have been occasions where you've been genuinely scared. Where you've questioned the everyday. Where you've turned your head a little bit quicker than normal to see what that noise was. Now, I promised you something a little bit special for today. Don't get me wrong, we do still have an amazingly terrifying listener true experience. But, as an addition to that, what I'm going to start with is an experience you may have heard from me before. It's a personal experience that happened to me. And I'm going to tell it in the style of the dark paranormal. This happened to me when I was around 17 years of age. I was in sixth form, which is a kind of college that you can go into after secondary school. One person in my class let me know that he knew a playwright who had written a play and was looking for actors to star in it. I wouldn't normally be interested, but he said it was a very small role and the person needed the ability to sing. Fancying myself as a bit of a singer, I inquired a bit more and was delighted when I found out the song that would be sung would be Julia by the Beatles, more specifically by John Lennon. So I got in contact with the playwright. We had a conversation over the phone and he invited me to meet up with the rest of the cast to see if we all got along. He said they were meeting that Friday evening at a cafe called Cafe Tabac on Bold Street in Liverpool city centre. So that Friday night, I got the train into Liverpool Lime Street and walked over to Cafe Tabac. When I walked in, I was a bit late and the rest of the troupe were already there. They were sat in like a semicircle. The way the cafe was laid out, there was one long bench seat which ran the length of the entire wall of the cafe and small round tables dotted along that bench seat with chairs around them. The group took up one of those tables circling around that table, with some people sat on the bench seat, so it formed an almost complete circle. I came in and sneaked onto the bench seat, next to a guy who was a little bit further away, but still part of us, and next to a girl who was on my right. The playwright, Mark, introduced everyone. He said, for example... This is Kelly, she's doing the female lead. I said, hello. I said, um, John does the music. And he motioned to the guy to the left of me. I nodded to him. Um, and we all got talking. After discussions of the play, I, with the interest that I've got, started talking about ghosts. As I like nothing better when I meet strangers than asking them if they've got any personal paranormal experience, which I obviously wouldn't have heard. So we all get talking as a group about the paranormal, 
and we talk for a good few hours until the cafe looks like it's starting to close. So everybody heads outside to make their way home. Now Mark, the playwright, and the majority of the rest of the cast all live in a different town to me. They live in the town centre called Kirby, whereas I lived in the town centre called Highton. Basically two different ways of getting home. It meant that Mark and the rest of the group would walk down the street and I would walk up the street, alone. So, I decided to light a cigarette and say goodbye to them. They all walked down the street and I waited outside the cafe and lit my cigarette. Then the door opened and John, who was sat to my left, who does the music, came out and said, Sorry mate, I couldn't help but overhear. You say that you live in Heighton. I said, yes. He said, so do I. Would you like a lift? I've brought my car. Now, this was about 10.30 at night. And Liverpool can be a bit precarious in terms of safety. Especially on a Friday night. So, as opposed to spending a 30-minute walk to Lime Street, then a 20-minute train ride, and then a 30-minute walk back to my dad's, I decided it would be brilliant if I could get a lift from John. So I, of course, said yes. We get into John's car and we head off. As we start driving away, John looks at me and says, you seemed really into all that paranormal stuff. I said, yeah, I am. I really am. He starts rubbing his chin in his mouth and he says, I really want to tell you something to get your advice. I went, wow, okay, please do. He said, the only thing is, if I tell you this, there's a chance it's going to pass on to you. Obviously, hearing something like that was like a red rag to a bull. So I was like, come on, John, you've got to tell me now. He says, okay, I will. He says, I went on a family holiday with me kids and me wife to Glastonbury. Not to the Glastonbury Music Festival. This was a different time of the year. This was autumn. There was no one else there, he says. He said, I pulled out the video camera and started filming the kids just playing football, messing around. And then he asks, do you know of Glastonbury Tor? That's spelled T-O-R, by the way. I said, yeah, it's a hill in Glastonbury, very famous. He says, yeah, it's apparently a mystical sort of hill. He says, anyway, as I'm filming the kids, I notice people on the tour. He says, the camera I was using had quite a good telescopic zoom. So I decided to try and zoom in to see who these people were and what they were doing. He said he zoomed in with the camera and it became clear what he was viewing was a group of people in white robes walking in a circle at the top of the tour. As he zoomed in more, one of the men in the circle stopped 
turned his head quickly towards the camera and pointed directly at him. He says at this point, he moved the camera away quickly, focusing back on his kids. The rest of the holiday went pretty smoothly, and they headed back home. When John opened his front door, there was a letter on the mat. The letter had no address, no stamp. It was just a white envelope. Confused, he opened the envelope and there was a handwritten note inside which said, you've interrupted something you shouldn't have. That's all it said. But it had been hand-delivered to his address in Liverpool. Back to our car ride now. And obviously, to me, this was a fantastic paranormal story which I could not wait to hear the end of. I had a genuine chill running down my back as I sat, mouth open, listening to John. But that's when John started to change. Not physically, but emotionally. He started to ramble a bit. And he said to me, but that's when things start to kick off properly. I asked him what he meant. He said over the next week, he received a few more envelopes hand-delivered. One contained no letter, but it did contain a number of fingernails. Another, again, contained no letter, but that contained dead insects. As John's telling me this, he's getting more and more wound up. His eyes are going wide. The pupils in his eyes seem to have gone jet black. And he's getting more and more energetic. He starts saying, then it come after me family. In a quite not necessarily aggressive but definitely panicked tone he said his daughter woke up at 3am screaming that there were people in white robes in her room he said his wife woke up the middle of the morning seeing a white light had come from outside into the room before disappearing with a bang This, obviously, was starting to really freak me out as I'm sat in the car. John's starting to speed a bit now. And I'm starting to be both scared of the story and slightly scared of John. John then says this is where what he referred to as a curse started to take effect. However, when I tell you the things he was saying, It doesn't sound like a curse as such. For example, he said to me, Do you know when you drive up behind a car and you look at the registration plate and the last three initials are the initials of your arch enemy? To me, that's not a curse. That's paranoia. 
Then he started to talk about a good friend of his, who died tragically and suddenly at an early age, which John put down to the curse. Then he said how his wife had started neglecting him, and his marriage was falling apart. Again, he put this down to the curse. Each time he gave an example, his eyes got wider, his pupils grew darker, and he kept saying at the end of each example, I just hope this doesn't pass on to you. Please tell me you won't tell anyone else, because I'd only feel responsible if this curse was passed on. I, of course, tried to reassure him that I wouldn't tell anyone else, that it sounded like a crazy episode, and that I could understand where his paranoia was coming from. But in truth, it was now around 50% fear of the story and 50% fear of John. And the fear of John was growing. So much so, that as we got close to where I was to be dropped off, it crossed my mind I didn't want this guy to know where I lived. So, on a nearby street, I said, anywhere he will do, you know. And he pulled over the car and locked the doors. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. He turned to face me, and his face did not look like the same face that greeted me outside the cafe. It was contorted in panic and fear. Promise me you won't tell anyone what I've told you, he said, putting his hands up to his mouth. I promise I will tell no one, I said back to him. He unlocked the doors and I got out of the car and I had never been so terrified in all my life. As a good Catholic boy, the only thing I knew to do was to say the Lord's Prayer as I ran home, making sure to double back on myself in case John was following. That night I didn't get much sleep, as you can imagine, and the next day I decided I didn't want anything to do with that play because I didn't want to see John again. So I rung Mark, the playwright. It turns out he'd had second thoughts regarding me and the play also. He said when we spoke on the phone, my voice was very deep, which he thought must have meant I was a big stocky man. So he was slightly surprised when a 17-year-old skinny student with John Lennon glasses waltzed into the cafe. We had a good laugh and I thanked him for the opportunity. I then said 
Tell you what, Mark, that John's a bit of a weirdo. What do you mean? said Mark. He gave me a lift last night, and you should have heard some of the things he was talking about. I like a scary story, but this was next level. Sorry, said Mark. I've no idea what you're on about. John, I said. The guy who does the music. He gave me a lift last night. He lives in Highton, where I live. John wasn't there last night, said Mark. He's not well. Wait, I said. When I came into that cafe, I sat next to a guy, and when you were introducing everyone, you gestured towards him and said, and John does the music. Mark said, that guy was there when we turned up. I didn't mean to gesture towards him. I was just saying, and John's doing the music, because a lot of the other guys know John. I was just trying to give, you know, a roundup of who was involved. I've no idea who that guy was. So, there you go. That was my genuine, not necessarily paranormal experience, but a story about someone who genuinely believed they had a paranormal experience. And it definitely made me think twice about accepting lifts from people I don't know. Our main story for this finale episode of season one comes in from a listener named Sarah. Hi Kev. I recently listened to your Halloween special on We Need to Talk About Ghosts where you and Becca stayed in a haunted hotel. And I thought I'd share my experience of when I was a cleaner in a very haunted hotel in Edinburgh, Scotland. I decided to omit the name of the hotel, as I still have close friends who work there, and I'd hate for them to start to get calls thanks to me. The hotel itself was a four-star plus. By that I mean, it only required a swimming pool to be listed as a five-star. However, due to the age of the place and the fact it's a historic building, the owners decided to keep all the original fixtures and fittings. It's such a beautiful building, dripping with gold leaf, marble staircases, the works. And... Like the hotel you stayed in, historically has had some famous guests, including ex-presidents, famous writers, poets and Hollywood stars. There was a small crew of us cleaners who had split into a morning shift, evening shift and general day cover. Most of us would prefer a morning shift, as although it was a very, very early start, like 4am early. It meant you had the day to yourself once you finished. The shift people disliked the most was the night shift. 
the night shift's main tasks were cleaning the conference suites and the bar area and setting up any rooms where we had guests, usually from far-off places, who were arriving in the early hours. The hotel was massive, over 200 rooms. So a night shift usually consisted of four staff. Two would focus on the conference suites, one in the bar and one on room duty. On this particular night, a very experienced member of staff, that I'll call Shirley, came over on first break and said, Room 130 is on the list for a setup. Who's drawing the short straw then? Our paths didn't cross that often, especially on night shifts, so I had no idea what she was on about. Not me, said Karen. I've told Steve, Steve was our manager, that I'll walk out if I'm given that room again. I glanced at the third girl, Debbie, with a smile. Any idea what this is all about? Debbie was the newest out of all of us. She just smiled back and shrugged. It's one of you two then, said Shirley. What's the issue with the room? asked Debbie. Well, volunteer and you'll see, Shirley replied, smiling. Okay, if no one else wants it, I will, said Debbie. We all kind of shrugged, as if to say, fair enough. All except Karen, who still wore the scowl from her comment about walking out. Me and Karen were coupled to do the conference suites. So, after we broke the back of it and were almost done, I decided that would be a good time to question her about what the story was with the room. You don't want to know, she snapped back, angrily wiping down a table. Must be something bad, I replied. Karen threw down her cloth on the table with a humph and jammed her hand to her hip. She looked me in the eye and said, Okay, do you believe in ghosts? Now, I didn't at that point. But I could tell that that reply wasn't going to get me the story. So I said, Kind of. Sit, Karen said, pulling in a chair for me and then sitting on the opposite one. Well, I didn't believe, she started. The woman who worked here before you told me to watch myself in that room. And like you, I laughed it off. I know it all I was. I thought all that stuff was nonsense, ghosts and the like. I'd never seen Karen so fixated. She was normally a happy-go-lucky lady. Late fifties. One of those comforting grandmother types. But right now, she looked different, cold, serious. One night, that room came up on a fixed list for an early check-in, she started. I went along to set it up with the trolley. In brackets, it says, the trolleys held a change of bedding and general cleaning products. 
she continued. I go in, start taking the old bedding off. I had a little transistor FM radio I'd carry round at the time. I set it on the side, put Radio 4 on, and then popped the kettle on. In brackets, Sarah says, you may not know this, but it's quite common for us to help ourselves to a cuppa in a room before replenishing the items. Karen continues. As I carry on, I realised that the radio had played about three songs and the kettle hadn't clicked. So, I walked over to check it was plugged in. I was sure it was. I remember seeing the blue light come on. Anyway, I get over there and the plug switch is off. So I flick it on again. As I'm about to walk away, I hear a click. And I turn round and it's off again. I wonder if it's the electrics, I think. So I flick it on. Right in front of my eyes, it flicks back off. I wait for a minute and slowly flick it back on again. And as true as I'm sat here in front of you now, the plug flew out of the socket. I ran to that door which was held open by the trolley and just stood there looking at the plug. Bloody hell, Karen, that's terrifying, I said. But I could tell she wasn't finished. Next thing, the radio turned itself up so loud I had to go in to turn it down. This was two in the morning and I didn't want a complaint going to the desk. So, I run in. Then, everything was like a blur. I heard the trolley behind me sound like it was moving. And when I look, I just catch the end of it going back onto the landing, making the door slam shut. At that exact same time, the lights go out, and I ran. I banged my knee on the corner of the bed and fell to the floor. And as I'm lying on the floor, I heard, well, I felt, a pair of feet walk quickly up to the side of my head. I held my breath and reached out my hand. I honestly thought I'd feel a leg of someone. But there was nothing there. Just as I'm about to get myself back up, bam, I felt his hand go round my neck and push me to the floor. I couldn't move, I couldn't breathe. I honestly thought I was going to die right there in that room. And just as I thought, this is it, I'm a goner. The lights came back on. The radio lowered itself down to where it had been. And I'm laying there alone in this room. By this point, my mouth was wide open. I'd never heard a paranormal tale told so convincingly. Steve came up and sorted the room out in the end. It leaves lads alone, you see. It only goes after women. And I said to Steve, if you ever put me in that room again, I'm gone. I was taken aback by the utter horror of Karen's story and immediately thought about poor Debbie up there on her own. I said, After that, I feel like I need to go and check on Debbie. Karen replied, Rather you than me. So, I went up in the lift, 
and as the lift opens, you're faced with room 130. The door was wedged open by the trolley, and I peeked around the doorframe. Debbie screamed. She'd had her headphones in and was oblivious to me being there. You scared the life out of me there, she said. Are you okay? I asked. Fine. No idea what their issue is with this room. I'm almost done now. Just need to change the towels. Do you fancy your brew? Yeah, sure, I said, feeling slightly reassured with how normal this all seemed. Okay, I'll change the towels. You put the kettle on. It's still got water in because I was about to make myself one, said Debbie as she walked into the bathroom with the towels. Karen must have imagined this, I thought to myself as I put the kettle on. Click. The switch turned itself off. I've just seen it with my own two eyes. I just stared at the switch. Sorry? I heard Debbie mutter from the bathroom. Then, Sarah? What? I replied. She raced out of the bathroom. Have you been here all that time? Yeah, why? Debbie put a hand to her mouth. Seriously, on my life, have you been here all that time? Yes, I haven't moved, Debbie, I said. Debbie said, I've just bumped into someone in the bathroom. Actually, someone though. I just backed into them. I stood on the foot. I thought it was you. We both looked towards the bathroom door in silence. Then we heard the unmistakable sound of the shower turning on. Let's go right now, I muttered. We turned to the door just to catch the trolley edging itself out of the room. Luckily, we caught it just in the nick of time and we shot out of that room and down the corridor as quick as we could. I've never been so scared before or since and I have no explanation for what was going on in that room. I worked there for about two months after that, mainly on day shifts, and thankfully, never in that room again. As I said at the start, I still have friends who work there, who I keep in touch with. And they've told me that that room is now used for storage. But even so, they say there are still stories of girls going in there for stock and being locked in. I tried to look up any history of the place in regards to why that room is how it is, but I found nothing. The rumour is that in the 70s there was a VIP staying. He apparently killed a woman he was with and then himself. But to protect his wife and his family and his public image, his people moved his body to a private apartment and disposed of the girl's body. He was lauded as a dead legend in the press, while she was never found. I take this rumour as just that, though. A rumour. Either way, I know what I experienced in that room and I know it was something supernatural. Love the show. Look forward to season two. Sarah. Thank you so much, Sarah, for sending that story in. 
I can truly think of no better story to end Season 1 of The Dark Paranormal. Season 2 of The Dark Paranormal will start in the second week of December and we will be going to weekly episodes for Season 2. As I said earlier, if you wish to send in your true paranormal experience for Season 3, we're already starting to collate stories. So please, send your story to contact at talkaboutghosts.com Thank you so much for joining me on Season 1. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And we'll be back the second week of December with Season 2 where we're going to take a deep look in the style of the dark paranormal at some of the most famous paranormal cases in the world. So, to our American listeners, have a wonderful Thanksgiving and I'll see all of you for season two of The Dark Paranormal.